0: This chapel message is brought to you by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. In our church, we're working through a very long and detailed series on the Sermon on the Mount, and so you're getting leftovers from last Sunday. Um, my apologies to those who already heard it, but you're just going to have to suffer through it again. Um, <clears throat> And we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, open our our hearts to be able to hear and understand. Uh, Give us clarity uh, so that our thoughts are focused on your speaking to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said, this is kind of tucked in the middle of a probably a year-and-a-half-long series. It's going to take us a long time at the pace that I'm going. Uh, And and so, let me just summarize for you a little bit and catch you up. In in the beginnings of this um, section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing who the citizens of His kingdom are. And He said that, by their very nature, there are certain characteristics that those who are members of his kingdom will exhibit, the character of life that he lays out in the Beatitudes, which are very familiar to us. In other words, he says that children of my kingdom will see themselves uh, as poor in spirit rather than merely needing an occasional spiritual boost or just a helper. Uh, Children uh, of my kingdom will uh, mourn over their sin instead of justifying it and trying to defend themselves. Uh, My children will be meek instead of boastful and competitive. They'll have a hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of uh, toying around with all the many alternatives that the world has to offer. Uh, My children will be merciful instead of harsh and impatient and judgmental. Uh, They will be pure in heart rather than just when people are looking and noticing. They will be peacemakers uh, rather than trying to win at the expense of everybody else. And they will even gladly endure persecution for living this way rather than uh, expecting God to bring them the good life of heaven on earth, which we so often do. And then having laid out these character traits that are not so much describing what we are to become, but he says this is what you already are if you're my child. He goes on to tell us how we are to uh, exhibit that behavior. And he says it's not by withdrawing from the world in our safe Christian ghettos, nor is it by militantly attacking the world and trying to win the world for Jesus. But rather, he says, it's by being salt and light, having both a preserving effect upon the world, keeping it from uh, the further and faster decay that it's inevitably subject to, uh, as well as being a light that can guide people out out of their darkness. But in this section here, Jesus makes a transition to a, a section where he's beginning to say, okay, well, how do you do this? And it's a section that really runs on for a couple of chapters. And essentially what Jesus says here is that the way to go about this is by living a life of righteousness, a, a life of deep righteousness. But before he gets into all the details of what this righteous life looks like, he starts with two basic principles. Um, that kind of undergird the new life that he's talking about before he gets into the specifics. And that's really all I want to hone in on together here this morning. And and the two main principles that kind of underlie this before you get to any of the details is Jesus says, first of all, everything that I'm about to tell you is in full and complete agreement with everything that the Old Testament has ever taught. And secondly, that everything that I'm about to tell you is in complete utter disagreement with everything that your religious leaders, the Pharisees, are teaching you, and so um, if you want to get to the details, you're going to have to come and listen to yourself. But for now, we're just going to look at these two principles and see what we can learn from them. And, and you know, I think it's very common uh, today uh, for for people to say, you know, I really love the teachings of Jesus. I'm not really into the church. I'm not into Paul. I don't care about all the theology that focuses on sin and, and repentance and holiness and things like that. I just want to have a Jesus of love and forgiveness. Uh, And and can't we all just get along? That's the kind of teachings that I want. But you notice in this passage that Jesus clearly talks about both holiness and forgiveness. For Jesus, it's not either or, it's both. And so I think this begins to explain a little bit of the background for um, all the trouble that Jesus had in his life. Because he faced incredible opposition from the religious leaders of his day. Because, see, first of all, the entire Jewish system was based on highly trained priests uh, who came from all the right schools, uh, and they had been brought up in the system as they worked their way to the top. And here's Jesus quickly becoming the most popular teacher out there, and he didn't go to any of their schools, and he had zero credentials. And so they obviously despised him. But but even more than the system itself, uh, Jesus didn't spend all of his time just expounding upon the law like the pharisees did but he he did talk about mercy and and grace and forgiveness but but even worse for them is that jesus mixed together the insiders and the outsiders treating both the sinners and the good religious people as equally in need of rescue from their sin and so as a result all these questions naturally begin to arise is jesus against the old testament Is he only about grace and forgiveness? Are he teaching something totally new that we've never heard before? Is Jesus now starting a new dispensation of grace that does away with the Old Testament law? And so Jesus addresses all of those questions here. Um, and, And I think in doing so, he gives us a working theology for how the Old and New Testaments relate to one another. See, is Jesus establishing a new religion of grace or is he merely expounding on the continuing law with all these illustrations and parables and stories? Or is he giving us something entirely different? And listen, entire denominations are divided over this today, so I'm bound to offend somebody, but forgive me. Uh, now, b- before we try to get into understanding everything that Jesus is saying, um, Let's define some of our terms that we know what we're talking about. When Jesus is referring to the law here, he's referring to the entire Old Testament law, which is important to understand because when you get to verse 21 on through chapter 6 and 7, he's only dealing with the moral law. But at this point, Jesus is referring to the entire law, which included the moral law, the ongoing ethical commands of God, things like the Ten Commandments, but it also included the judicial law or the civil law, laws that, that govern the nation of Israel, gave them ways of, of behaving and relating to each other. And then you had the ceremonial laws that had to do with the sacrificial system and all the rituals for, uh, for worship of the community. And Jesus here is saying that he has come to fulfill all of them. Now, we'll get to the word fulfill and define it in a minute because that's what we all want to hear about. But for now, what I want us to deal with is Do we have to keep these laws today? Do we have to keep any of these laws? Are we under any obligation whatsoever? And of course, I think very few people would say that we are no longer um, having to keep the moral law. Even the secular world recognizes the wisdom that comes from the Ten Commandments. I mean, of course we should love our neighbors, we love ourselves. So what what about the civil laws? I mean, certainly we don't keep those because they were for the nation of Israel and we're not Israelites. And of course, we don't offer sacrifices anymore because we believe that Jesus was the final sacrifice that ended the need for any more sacrifices. But does that therefore mean that we can just throw all of these laws away? See, are there portions of your Bible that do not apply to you? You might as well just rip them out because they're of no use to you today. Is that the case? Well, not so fast, because the answer, I think, is both yes and no. No, we don't have to keep any of those specific ceremonial or civil laws anymore, but yes, we do have to listen to them, because they still do apply to us. Now, how? Well, let me me just give you an example. Let's take the the laws of, of weaving two kinds of cloth together. That was a sin. Or of plowing with two kinds of animals. Uh, besides the the folly of trying to plow with a huge oxen and a little calf, you're going to go in circles. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, nobody would say that wearing a blended weave-knit shirt today is a sin. But what was the point of that law? See, it it was a picture that was pointing to a deeper principle. And it's a principle that the Apostle Paul is able to summarize in a single verse. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, I want you to think about the nature of how prophecy works. Frankly, it's the nature of how anything that you're trying to describe in the future to somebody works. Uh, more often than not, what you're going to do is you're going to paint uh, pictures for them in order to depict it. Uh, let's just say, let's take it out of theology for a second. Let's just say, for example, I'm trying to give you directions to some place you've never been before. Um, and if you've never been there before, I'm going to give you a lot more picturesque details. I'm going to give you landmarks. I'm going to talk about the gas station on the left. I'm going to talk about this big ugly sign and this huge tree in the front yard. I'm going to depict a lot of the detail for you. But if I'm merely reminding you of a place you've been before, I'm going to say, look, you remember, it's, just, it's on Maple Street just down from the Millers. You're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And, and you see, what for the Old Testament people was a living principle. Do not be uh, unequally yoked. Um, It embodied an entire lifestyle, detailed laws and rituals and practices for the Old Testament community. Whereas for the New Testament believers, we don't need the rule anymore because Jesus has come. And so now Paul is simply able to say, guys, you remember this. Now don't forget, when you yoke yourself together with an unbeliever, it's going to lead to trouble for you. So don't do it. Don't marry an unbeliever. Don't ethically bind yourself to an unbeliever in business. And so, you see, the law itself doesn't apply to us anymore, but what the law pointed to still does. You can see this also in things like, uh, like the Passover, for example. We're not obligated to keep the Passover anymore. We don't have to go out and kill a lamb and spread its blood across our doorposts, but we do have to hang on to what it teaches That only the blood of Jesus can cover us and protect us from the angel of death. And if you think about it, there are even ways in which you and I today are living, looking forward with shadows, depicting things that we can't understand. Because think about how the Bible describes um, heaven and hell. And, And you notice whenever the Bible describes heaven and hell, it's always like, right? It's like a lake of fire, but it can't really be a fire because no one's burned up, but it's like that. Or heaven is like transparent streets of gold. Well, how can it be transparent and gold at the same time? Well, it's only like that. And the Bible says everything about heaven and hell is like these things because it's the best that it can give us, is to paint pictures for us that our minds yet can't comprehend. And so that's what all of these Old Testament laws were doing. So do we have to obey the ceremony and civil laws? No. But do we have to obey what they pointed to? Absolutely. And so when Jesus says here that he is fulfilling the law completely, he's talking about every one of these aspects. Since he obeyed the law for you in your place, it means that every detail of the Old Testament law has been completely fulfilled by you as well. See, what this is telling us is that you are as righteous and as holy and as perfect before the eyes of God as if you had completely obeyed every one of these ceremonial and civil and moral laws yourself. Now, let's move on to the second term here. Prophets, he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And of course, when you use the term law and prophets taken together, it was uh, summary language, almost code language for talking about the Old Testament. Uh, Whenever they say law and the prophets, it means all the Old Testament. But who were the prophets? I mean, what was their their job? Their job was, first of all, to teach the people the law of God and to call them to obey it. And then, secondly, to remind them that all their problems in life are coming because they're failing to live in obedience to it. In other words, their job was to call people to a level of obedience that, frankly, was impossible which in and of itself was part of the promise of a coming Messiah, who would one day come and keep the law for them. And even in the Old Testament, King David saw this and understood it because he said, God, I know you really don't want these burnt offerings and sacrifices, even though you command me to bring them. What you want is a heart that longs for God. You want a heart that longs for rescue, and that's what I've got. And so now we get to this often misunderstood term, fulfill. Let's define that one. Because, listen, to ears that love to be freed from any obligation to any rule, when we hear Jesus say, I've come to fulfill the law, we naturally want to hear that what he's saying is, hey, it's gone, right? We're free from the law entirely. It's all grace and all forgiveness now. The rules are gone. Woo, let's party, right? But that's clearly not what the term fulfill means. I mean, clearly, because he goes on in verse 19 to say, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's clearly not saying the law is bad and has been done away with, because the word finish here does not mean uh, to to, uh, fulfill, doesn't mean to finish or or complete as if we're done now and we just move on, but it, it... It literally means that he gave full obedience to it, that that he carried out everything that it commanded. Okay, so now with all of those terms and all that context behind us, what is it that Jesus is actually teaching us here? And and I think, again, two things. First of all, in verse 18, he says, for truly I tell you, right? He says, guys, I'm not kidding here. This is the absolute truth. And what he's saying is that God's law is absolute. And it can never be changed, it can never be modified, it can never be updated to meet with the times. What he's telling us is that the law of God is not merely some cultural expression of God's character, and it doesn't really apply in the same way to modern Western society as it did back then, and so we kind of have to reapply it into our modern context. No, in fact, he goes on here to say that not until heaven and earth itself pass away will this law lose its significance. He says not a jot or a tittle. In our modern vernacular, we might say not a comma or period is going to be lost, not, not the smallest letter, not the smallest marking on the smallest letter. Everything that the law and the prophets spoke will come to pass, down to the most minute detail. And then secondly, he says, not only will it never change, but in verse 17, he says, in light of that, I've not come to destroy the law or modify the law or stop any portion of God's law, because every story, every law, every principle, everything in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment and me. You remember when Jesus was uh, walking along with two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they were very sad. It was right after Jesus' death, before his resurrection. They were heartbroken because they said what we often say facing life, we thought he was the one. We thought he was going to rescue us, but now he's dead. And this is what Jesus says. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said and all the scriptures concerning himself. And Griff and I were talking about Sunday. We really both really wanted to listen in on that conversation. He showed them, he walked them through the entire Old Testament saying, everything in here is about me and let me show you how. And so obviously it can't be done away with because it's all about Jesus, We're not doing away with Jesus. I mean, think about it. Jesus was the perfect uh, Noah who saved us from the real floodwaters of God's wrath. Jesus was the perfect uh, Joseph who endured unjust suffering in order to save his people from death. Jesus was the perfect Moses who leads his people out of uh, slavery to their sin through the sacrifice of the Lamb and onto the promised land. Jesus is a perfect David, leading his people as a true and just king, and on and on it it goes. The whole Bible is about Jesus. It's all these pictures that are painting and depicting this Messiah that is yet to come. And and not only that, Jesus throughout his his ministry is constantly quoting the Old Testament. He he quotes nearly every portion of the Old Testament, and he does so in ways that are authoritative. Didn't God tell you? And he quotes from the Old Testament, right? Right. Jesus saw it as authoritative. And so to dismiss any portion of the Old Testament as fantasy or embellishment or even made-up stories to get a point across, I mean, you can believe that if you want to, but not without calling Jesus a liar and not without throwing away everything that he taught and stood for, not without dismissing what it was actually telling us about Jesus. See, did God really create the world by the breath of his mouth? Was the world literally destroyed by a flood? Was there a literal Garden of Eden with a real Adam and Eve? Or are they merely stories and principles that are there to teach us lessons? See, according to Jesus, they are authoritative and they are true. Everything in the Old Testament is the Word of God. Everything in the Old Testament will be fulfilled as He promised, down to the most small detail imaginable. And so likewise, to dismiss any of the prophets as mere uh, poetry that was meant to inspire the people contradicts the claims of Jesus here. Listen, you simply cannot dismiss the Old Testament as being old. It's not for me anymore. It's not for the New Testament church. It doesn't apply to me today without dismissing Jesus himself. See, and what this means is that you cannot take the Bible to be a book of moral principles. And then the details are up to you to decide how to apply them. We are not given the luxury of trying to read our current cultural enlightenment into the outdated history of an ancient nation. You simply cannot do that. And if you do, you're calling Jesus a liar. And you've got to throw away everything that he says. Listen, the Bible does not change just because culture does. Homosexuality is still a sin. Adultery, frankly, any sex outside of marriage is still a sin. Any racial or ethnic discrimination is still a sin. Abortion is still a sin. Taking advantage of the poor and the powerless is still a sin. Any lust, even hidden within your own heart, is still a sin. Being angry with another person, even quietly in your own heart, is still a sin. Any belief that life can be had apart from God, still a sin. Any thought that God will accept me if I just try my best, still a lie. Any belief that I can be sorry enough and committed enough to make God somehow more happy with me still a sin because God's word never changes. And and Jesus' attitude here was, I have come to obey the law completely for you. And therefore, Jesus says our attitude needs to be, and therefore I will obey it fully too. And of course, That's what grace is for, because we we don't have to obey it perfectly in order to find favor with God. Jesus already did that for us. Rather, we obey it because we have favor with God, because we want to be like Jesus. Listen, the law is a reflection of the character of the God who made us and who loves us. And therefore, the law is a picture of everything that God is in the process of transforming us into. So, of course, we obey the law. We have to obey the law, not to be accepted, because Jesus already did that for us, but to become, in reality, what God has already legally declared us to be. And we do so because our hearts now want to. See, the the legalist is content to say, listen, you just obey whether you want to or not. Coerce everybody into right living. Force your character to change. Use guilt and shame and the fear of losing your testimony to the watching world. You do whatever it takes to keep people in line. But the Christian says, listen, obey because your new heart wants to. And if it doesn't want to, find out what's keeping you from wanting to and repent of it. So you're already forgiven of whatever it is you're going to find, but you'll never be able to enjoy walking into the new life that God has called you to and is making for you eternally in heaven unless you do obey more and more. And so Jesus says, I've obeyed it fully, so now you obey as well. But then secondly, we said there were two major principles that Jesus gave here. First, that everything that he's about to say is in total agreement with everything that the Old Testament taught. But now, secondly and finally, everything that he's about to say is in utter contrast and in complete disagreement with the religious teachings of the Pharisees. And see, what was the essence of the religion of the Pharisees? Well, I mean, look at Bristol culture. Look at the Bible Belt that we live in. It was a religion that said, believe in God. No, I don't need, the, no, I don't need any insurance on in my car. All right? It was a religion that said, believe in God, honor God obey God, and it was the real God of the Bible that that they were not believing in some false God out there, but that by believing in God and obeying in God, you will find more favor with God. See, it was a religion that took everything that the Bible said, and it focused it totally on you and your responsibility, and it was a religion that tried to use being a good person and obeying the commands of God and staying out of the really big sins as a way to justify themselves, to prove themselves worthy of God to make themselves acceptable both before God and man. And and see, here's where it's possible, and listen to this, I think it's possible here to actually deny God by obeying God because it denies what the law actually says. And you know, Jesus gets into this in more detail um, in, in the passage ahead. But listen, if your view of the law is that by keeping it, I can be saved, or that by keeping it, God is more likely to answer my prayers or that by keeping it, God will let me into heaven. That's the general religion of the Bible belt. You know, so often I ask people in Bristol, are you a Christian? And they say, well, I'm working on it. I'm doing the best I can. You know, I'm trying. That is not Christianity. That is moralism. You cannot work at being accepted by Jesus. It's all about what he did, not about what you do. And that completely ignores the fact that the law was in its essence intended to drive us helplessly to Jesus. I can't do this stuff. So that we would look outside of ourselves for rescue. See, because the law is a reflection of God, it's a good thing. And as creatures who are designed by God, we have to obey it. It's just part of our DNA I mean, think about this. God didn't just randomly make up a bunch of laws just to trip us up. Let me see if I can get him with this one. That's not what the laws are all about. But the law is actually a reflection of God's own character. And, And being made in his image, it's a reflection of what we were designed for as well. But because it's only a reflection of God that our sin has tainted, we're not capable of keeping it anymore. And Jesus will just begin to explode the law here over the next couple chapters when he says, listen, the law doesn't just apply in the worst-case letter of the law scenarios. You know, don't commit first-degree murder in a really heinous way. But he says it even applies to the intent behind the law, which is never to even become angry with another person. Or you've broken the purpose that lies behind the command. And he goes on and on, chapter after chapter, just exposing our hearts and showing us how the law is so pervasive that nobody can keep it fully, which is why we need a Savior. So, how do we understand all this together? And this is really the important part. If God still commands us to obey his laws, and yet he forgives us when we don't, because Jesus has kept them for us, how does all this fit together? All right? and, and this is where the good news of the gospel comes into play, because listen, the legalist without the gospel will say, you must obey, but God forgives you if you're really sorry. But then you never know if you've obeyed enough or if you're sorry enough, and so you're stuck in this religious limbo of, uh, of constant fear of judgment and condemnation, enslaved by your guilt and your shame. But the gospel says now that Jesus has fully kept the law for you so that it is as legally true of you as it is of Jesus, now you can just work on obeying it without any fear of rejection. See, Jesus says, of course you will work on obeying me, and you'll work hard. You will try to keep it down to its smallest detail because that's now your new nature, and it's the nature of the God who loves you and has rescued you. Of course you're going to obey it. It's the very thing I'm transforming you into so that one day you will actually uh, be that righteous in heaven for all eternity. But of course, you're also gonna fail at keeping it. And that's okay because your acceptance before me is based on Jesus keeping it for you. So don't beat yourself up when you fail. But Jesus says, listen, I long for you to want to obey it. I long for you to pursue it with all of your heart because you love me. See, listen, all that grace does is is to free us from the guilt of falling short, but never from the obligation to keep it. Grace frees us from the condemnation of the law, but not from the obligation to obey what it commands. And so when you hear Jesus say, I have come to fulfill the law, hear these two things, and I'll close with this. First of all, that, that Jesus has obeyed every aspect of the law down to its most minute detail and he did it for you in your place as your substitute which means that in god's eyes legally you have obeyed every aspect of the law yourself down to its most minute detail you are that perfect you're that holy you are that righteous but then secondly also hear that jesus has obeyed the law so that you are now free to work on obeying it experientially in reality without any risk of judgment Or disappointment or frustration on God's part when you fail at it. You are free to pursue holiness. You're free to work hard at becoming more and more like Jesus without the stress uh, of feeling like you need to keep up. The law is all about Jesus. And he's come and he's kept it perfectly for you so that you could now return to the law and the ways that it reflects the God that we love and the person that he's transforming us into and say along with David, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are not law lovers. It exposes us. It makes us feel weak and impotent. Um, It it goes against everything in our nature that wants to prove that I'm okay, and that's why we hide ourselves from others. It's why we pretend to be things that we're not, because we don't want to run to you and rest in the finished work of Jesus. We want to save ourselves, or at least cooperate in the process. And I pray that you would help for us to see that to be citizens of your kingdom, that we have to be poor in spirit. And that doesn't mean that we're just a little needy. It means we're absolutely, utterly helpless and in need of rescue. And I pray that you would draw us to that place more and more each day that we might find full grace to be able to rest in what Jesus has done so that we can enjoy the process of becoming more and more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.